You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM. This is Real Fiction. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. Today I'm in conversation with Elizabeth Ausbrink, author of Made in Sweden. I write nonfiction, but I do believe that reality should be described in as interesting way as possible because I think most of the time reality uh, surpasses fiction. Elizabeth Osprink is the author of Made in Sweden and two other nonfiction books, including 1947, which was an NPR Best Book of the Year in 2018. She has been called Sweden's premier literary historian. A journalist and author, Osprink lives in Stockholm. Her previous books have won the August Prize, the Danish-Swedish Cultural Fund Prize, Poland's Kapuzinski Prize, and have been translated into 19 languages. In her essays and reviews of books, published in both Swedish and Danish press, she focuses on the aftermath of World War II and deals with memory and oblivion. Joining me from Stockholm to discuss her book, Made in Sweden, is Elizabeth Ausbrink. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the program. Thank you. Okay, well, Made in Sweden was recently published in the United States by Scribe Press, And something I didn't mention in the introduction is that you have a unique Swedish background. So before we talk about the book and your body of work, can you tell us something about your early life in Sweden? Uh, Well, it's very connected to the the book actually made in Sweden because it all started out with with a political discussion taking place here a couple of years ago uh, where the right-wing populists started to talk about Swedish values and it seemed very clear to them what Swedish values were and what un-Swedish values were and, and uh, I was thinking about that when I realized that from my very first breath Uh, I was uh, clearly defined by a specific Swedish value because, and here we come to my my Swedishness, I'm I'm the child of two immigrants. My mother is British, my father is Hungarian, and they met here. And they are not anymore uh, married, and they're not, um, they don't agree on a lot of things, but they do agree on the fact that I am made in Sweden, which, of course, I'm grateful for that they have the same point of view on this aspect. And then I'm also born in Sweden. But when I am born, I I am a Hungarian citizen. And this is because of a Swedish value that is so integrated in, in Sweden that it's become citizenship law. It's based on the principle of heritage. It's The legal term is the blood principle. And this is, of course, completely different from the principle in the US, where you are guided by the territorial principle. So that that was the start of, of that book, Made in Sweden. I wanted to understand what country was this that I had been born into. I'm always fascinated by the timing of a book's release and the, um, the impetus for an author to begin writing a book. And you mentioned that this book was, um, I don't know, perhaps inspired or just timed out well with some of the extremist language and far-right groups that have been 
uh, gaining ground in some European countries. And so the timeliness of the release of Made in Sweden is really striking. I'd love to know, how do you relate historical and contemporary Sweden with the current strain of extremist politics we're seeing? And most of those those discussions are coming out of Italy and Germany. I think one of the things that surprised me so much about your book was how you relate all of these threads and strains. This is a theme in all my books, actually, and from the very first one to this one, and of of several reasons. But to try to answer your question shortly, it's uh, there is a specific reason that the right-wing populism in Sweden is actually a bit different from in other countries. Here, especially we are neighboring Nordic countries, because as you know, for instance, Denmark and Norway, they were occupied by the Nazis. They had Gestapo and SS on the streets. They had citizens uh, shot in the streets. They actually experienced real oppression. Sweden did not. Sweden declared itself neutral. And it was, of course, a smart move. It kept Sweden out of the war as much as possible. But beneath the surface, as I do write about in in Made in Sweden, there was a very close collaboration with uh, Hitler Germany when it comes to import and export. And, And the things that Sweden exported to Nazi Germany could very well have prolonged the war. This is difficult to prove, uh, but one has to raise the question. So there is a kind of... Uh, when, when Denmark and Norway, for instance, had uh, legal purges, like a lot of European countries had, France had it, Poland had it, they had to do a moral and a legal purge after the war to start again. But as Sweden never officially was uh, occupied, this never happened. The people who were were hoping for Hitler's success or were hoping for Stalin's uh, defeat, uh, because these things were, of course, connected, uh, they sort of just went down below the surface. And that meant that the ideas, they were never questioned. They were never really debated in the same way. And they never became the same kind of taboo as they are in, for instance, Denmark and Norway. So when the time was right, they surfaced again. And our right-wing party, the Swedish right-wing populist party here, they actually were created by people who were hardcore Nazis, some of them. They were hardcore Nazis in the very beginning of the creation of this party. And they had, have for a long time, had ideals that were not democratic. And now they've sort of changed clothes and changed the way of speaking. But I would still call them ethno-pluralists, which is a kind of racism in disguise. So in that way, they actually differ from a lot of the right-wing movements in Europe. And uh, one person who was very vital for this was the Swedish fascist, Per Engdahl. And I write about him in 1947. And I also write about him in this book, uh, in Vienna, the trees still remain because Ingvar Kamprod, the founder of IKEA, he appears in that book and he was a big fan of this fascist Per Engdahl for years and years. 
Your book, Made in Sweden, uh, has a, a really interesting structure. There are 25 chapters. Each is devoted to a specific aspect of Swedish culture or history. Um, it's ranging from cleanliness to a statement about the preservation of the Swedish race and IKEA. But I would like to ask you first, in relation to the que- the answer you just gave, there there is a political scientist, a Swedish political scientist named Rudolf Schelin. <laughs> Okay. Well, what can you tell us about this political scientist and how he influenced the rise of Nazism and how he may have inspired Hitler? I don't think he inspired the rise of Nazism in himself. He was a a super conservative anti-democrat and nationalist. He thought Sweden, you know, was the best country ever. And, um, he hated democracy. He hated the parliamentary system. He he was an elitist and a nationalist and a conservative nationalist, living in the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. He was inspired by the idea of the survival of the fittest. And uh, he transformed that into countries. He believed that the the most powerful country was entitled to take over smaller and weaker countries. He was also inspired by a German concept of Lebensraum, which is uh, the space of living, which we now know as a Nazi term, but it was there before the Nazis took it. So he wrote a book about this, and then he actually died before Nazism was really uh, created. But his books were extremely popular in Germany, and they were read by a certain person who became a teacher for Rudolf Hess, which, and he was one of the few persons very close to Adolf Hitler, and he was together with Hitler when he did this first try to grasp power. And when they were imprisoned, Hitler dictated Mein Kampf, my struggle, and Hess was uh, writing it. So yes, this super nationalist Rudolf Schelin went directly into the prison where Hitler was sitting and dictating Mein Kampf. So it's it just went straight into the book and into the core of his ideas of ruling the world. There is a subtitle on the cover of Made in Sweden. And it reads, how the Swedes are not so nearly as egalitarian, tolerant, hospitable, or cozy as they would like to have you think. And I will admit that I've always considered Sweden to to possess tolerance, high ideals. Um, And in preparing for this discussion, I asked a few people, what is the first thing that comes to mind when I say Sweden? And I really enjoyed the responses, and I'd, I'd like to ask you about what, how, you, how, how what, these what answers. What did they say? <laughs> they, they, I'd like to. I, I suspect that the answers might be different coming from a primarily American response versus European. But I heard blonde, mm-hmm. cold, North, Finland, IKEA. I heard. Um, social safety net. But the one that surprised me the most was when two people said uh, Swiss or Switzerland. And I thought, what in the world? I'm curious, do you find that readers outside of Europe tend to confuse Sweden with other neutral and Nordic countries? 
And what what are you finding is your reader response in Sweden versus the US? To exchange Switzerland with Sweden is sort of an old joke. Uh, I think it's been around for ages that somehow people have connected these two very small countries with each other. They're both rich and they also claim they were neutral during the war. So, But it's not a big thing, I think. But I do think uh, that the subtitle you referred to is in a way... We have this word, we've tr- Sweden has tried to market itself as a nation with a special word called lagom. I don't know if you've come across it. Uh, it's like the Danes, they've, they've tried to market themselves with the word hygge. Is this something you're familiar with? I have heard hygge. Lagom is a new word for me. What, what does that mean? It's a very common word in Sweden and a lot of Swedes associate themselves with lagom and it means enough or good enough. And it's, um, it's supposed to, you know, connect to the idea that no one is better than the other because these are very strong thoughts in the Scandinavian countries uh, on large. We have this idea that no one is better than anyone else. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or, you know, aristocracy or whatever. We're all the same. We have the same value. And and that's also a thing that oppresses people. So, logom is a word that Sweden has tried to market itself with, but it's actually an illusion because if we look at Sweden from an international point of view, there is a Swiss institute who actually measures values, national values. And they interview people from a hundred countries about how they look at important things like family, society, God, religion, atheism, individualism, values. And when they put all these countries together and their responses, Sweden actually is extreme compared to the rest of the world. It's all by itself in in the corner. Because in Sweden, the, the welfare system combined with the history of Sweden has uh, generated a country where individuality and being independent is a very strong idea. And we pay a lot of taxes and we get support uh, when we're weak or old or vulnerable. We get support directly from the state. So the state supports the individual. And that is the purpose with, with that is that the individual should not be depending on hers or his family or Uh, where in the country she or he is born or what economic status they have. You should be completely freed by everything that surrounds you and the state's direct support to the individual will ensure that freedom. So this makes Sweden completely extreme. And that's why the word logom, which means, you know, like everyone else or enough, that's, it's, it's an illusion. I knew when I received the book that it was a very strong possibility that the the global company IKEA would be discussed, and you do discuss this in chapter sixteen. And uh, I am fascinated by your research 
about a man named Ingvar Kamprad. You mentioned him a little earlier in this discussion, but can you tell us about the founder of IKEA? And and then I want to reference something that really struck me about your work. It's it's the final sentence of the chapter about IKEA. You write. Ingvar Kamprad's image and Sweden's continue to reflect each other without shadows, without disgrace, and without any ambition to come to terms with its past. And I want to also mention, or remind listeners, we're speaking with Elizabeth Ausbrink, the author of Made in Sweden. And um, this book was published uh, late 2019. She has another book coming out this month titled and in vienna the trees still remain and there are some threads between those two books involving this man named ingvar kamprad what can you tell us about him it all started out with this book you mentioned in vienna the trees still remain uh, because this was a book i wrote some years ago and it's as you say now being published in the us and it's about a jewish refugee boy who was sent to sweden uh, in order to escaped the Nazi persecution. And he was an, alone here in Sweden and he became, he had to support himself when he was 14 and he became a farmer's helper. And when he's 19, he applies for a job at the Kamprad estate and he becomes best friend with the, the son in the house, Ingvar Kamprad. And when Ingvar creates and founds the IKEA business, this Jewish refugee is right by his side. They're the best friends and they do everything together. They share everything. So in order, I was writing about this Jewish refugee and his extraordinary life. And of course, Ingvar Kamprad comes in as a part of that. And I knew at the time that Ingvar Kamprad had been involved in the Swedish fascist movement, which was very anti-Semitic before the war and during the war. So there was a very interesting contradiction there. How come he loved his friend, Otto Ullmann, the Jew from Vienna, uh, but he was still deeply involved in the fascist movement? So there are several answers to this. First of all, Kamprod was um, the grandchild of a German Nazi, and his father was also a Nazi. And this he told me himself when I interviewed him, when I did research for this book. And uh, they, he grew up calling Hitler Uncle Hitler. So in a sense, these ideas weren't at all strange to him. In another way, he's wonderfully human because he does an exception from his ideas when he meets a human being that he loves and, and loves in a friendship way. And this is, of course, nothing unique. We know that, for instance, the Nazi leader Heinrich Himmler, he said to the generals uh, in a, when, when it was coming down to the final solution, he told them in a famous speech, he said, we all know a decent Jew, but we have to, we have to put ourselves above this. So this is the beauty, I think, of Ingvar Kamprad, the founder of IKEA, is that he, he didn't put himself above that. But the problem is that he never stopped to reflect either. And I then did some more research when it came to him, and I found in the National Archives here, I found papers that no one else had seen. Uh, it was the secret, the Swedish secret police had actually had him under surveillance during the war when he was 17, 18 years of age, because 
not because he was a fascist, but because he was a member of the hardcore Nazi party in Sweden. It's called the SSS, and he had membership number 4014. So suddenly I had... Uh, I had a, a piece of news that hadn't been out there before, and it, of course, made things even more complicated. Unfortunately, he didn't want to answer any more questions uh, after I'd revealed that, uh, so I could never discuss this with him myself. But um, And Ingvar Kamprad had passed away recently. Was he still alive when your book... And in Vienna, the tree still remain was published. Yes. Was, oh, yes. Yeah. Did he have a reaction to the final product? I'm not aware of his personal reaction. I sev I asked him for an, a new interview, of course, several times, and he had also read the manuscript concerning him, the parts concerning concerning him before the book was published, but he didn't want to comment on them. But IKEA, of course, had a reaction to this piece of news because it was spread all over the world. I sat for a week with two phones ringing constantly, and um, it was a major case of bad publicity for IKEA as a whole. So they started to say that, A, he's an old man, um, but I was interviewing him in the headquarters of IKEA. He was still the boss, so he wasn't sitting in an old people's home not knowing what he was saying. Also, his assistant was there all the time. I have it recorded. The second thing they said was that this isn't news, but it was news because we had known he was involved in the fascist movement, but that's one thing, being a member uh, of the hardcore Nazi party was something else. And then they gave up, and a couple of weeks later, it maybe took five or six weeks, they made a huge donation to the UN, to the refugee, uh, the work with refugees within the UN, and that became an enormous story because it was the biggest private donation to UN ever, and um, that sort of killed the bad news, and it created a refugee camp in Kenya, and I think several journalists actually called the UN and, and, you know, asked them, how does it feel to take money to clean the image of IKEA? And they said, well, not that good, but we need the cash. And uh, that was that. That is a striking reflection of that sentence that I read. And I encourage everyone if to give a close look to chapter 16, because it really frames the, I think the centerpiece, it's a centerpiece statement for me about the body of your work. And to my knowledge, you are the first journalist and author to come across that footnote of history and build it into a real story about Swedish history, contemporary environment. So it, for me, it's just fascinating. I, I didn't know any of this. Uh, before I let you go, I just have a couple more questions. Um, you know, after reading Made in Sweden, I my reaction is that you really do love this country. You admire you admire the country, but like everything, loyalty has a limit. Yeah, well, my love isn't blind. What do you want readers to take collectively from the body of your work? You know, I'm very vain. Uh, so <laughs> on that question, on that question, I can you know I can only say that. If they like my writing, if they appreciate the way I think, uh, the way I describe the world, and if they appreciate my language, that would make me a very happy writer. Um, it's I, I write nonfiction, but I do believe that reality 
should be described in in the as interesting way as possible because I think most of the time reality uh, surpasses fiction. I think time and time again, I'm shocked by reality in a way that I never, I'm never shocked when I look at, you know, Netflix. Uh, and um, I also read a lot of poetry. So I want to see if I can combine fiction, nonfiction, writing about reality with facts that I've checked and that are checkable and still reach another part of the brain through using another language, the poetic tone, hopefully. So you've got my vanity there. <laughs> I think that's fair. And I will say that you are a writer who is known for bringing poetic prose into your works of nonfiction, and the writing is very engaging. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> are you able to tell us what you're working on next? I'm finishing a book. I am very close to deadline, and it's um, an exploration of my family story on my mother's side. So it's about three women, uh, three generations, and takes place in three countries. Elizabeth, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us on Real Fiction Radio. I really appreciate the discussion. I've learned so much today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to WERA. 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find me at realfictionradio.com. Thanks for listening.